Genesis chapter 30, oh, 36, sorry, uh, starting at verse 1 and reading all the way through to verse 1 of chapter 37. This is the account of the family line of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Adar, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholabama, daughter of Anar, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basmath's daughter, Basmath, daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nebaioth. Adar bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basmath bore Ruel, and Oholabama bore Jewish, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau, who were born to him in Canaan. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is, Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adar, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Eliphaz, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Adar. The sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizar. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Esau's wife, Aholabamah, daughter of Anah and granddaughter of Zibion, whom she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, chiefs Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs descended from Eliphaz and Edom. They were grandsons of Adar. The sons of Esau's son, Ruel, chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizar. These were the chiefs descended from Ruel in Edom. They were grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, chiefs Jeish, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Aholabama, daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite who were living in the region. Lotan, Shabal, Zivian, Anar, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These sons of Seir and Edom were Horite chiefs. The sons of Lotan, Hori, and Hamam. Timnah was Lotan's sister. The sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Anam. The sons of Zibian, Ea, and Anna. This is the Anna who discovered the hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his, his father Zibian. The children of Anah, Dishon and Aholabama, daughter of Anah. The sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Keran. The sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. The sons of Dishon, Uz and Aran. These were the Horite chiefs, Lotan, Shabal, Zibian, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the Horite chiefs, according to their divisions, in the land of Seir. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela, son of Beor, became king of Edom. His city was named Dinhaba. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah from Bozrah, succeeded him as king. When Jobab died, Husham from the land of the Temanites succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, who defeated, 
who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avith. When Hadad died, Samlah from Masrakah succeeded him as king. When Samlah died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the river succeeded him as king. When Shaul died, Balhanan, son of Akbor, succeeded him as king. When Balhanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His city was named Por, and his wife's name was Mehadabal, daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. These were the chiefs descended from Esau by name, according to their clans and regions. Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Taman, Mibzah, Magdiel, and Aram. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their settlements in the land they occupied. This is the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Okay, that was outstanding. Congratulations. You get an R2-D2. Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. Well, well done. That was brilliant. Now, why on earth were we reading that? Well, uh, you'll find out in a minute. Uh, but we believe that all of the Bible is God's word. And so it's important to consider all of it. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would be with us now as we dive a little bit more into these uh, details. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the Bible, for all of it. Uh, We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired every single word. And we ask that you would be with us now, that that same Spirit would move within us so that we might appreciate your word, every bit of it, and be moved to love and adore you and follow in your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in uh, 2013, a shy and timid Alice Fredenham was her name. Uh, she went on to Britain's Got Talent, uh, and it was a stunning audition. Uh, it was so unexpected. The look on the judges' faces was just priceless. It was fantastic. It's a great clip. You could look it up. Uh, as Alice, she punched out this very sultry, spectacular version of My Funny Valentine. Uh, one of the judges, actually uh, Simon uh, Cole, he, Cole, he said uh, afterwards, your voice is like liquid gold. You have such an authentically beautiful voice. He said, you could sing the phone book. (laughs) And today we come to something of a phone book. Knowing, here in uh, chapter 36 of Genesis. It's a list of names that in any other situation we'd skip over, get onto something more interesting, certainly not spend six minutes reading it, uh, and then a further 25 minutes looking closer at it. What is wrong with you people? And yet this passage uh, is sung by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the whole Bible, which crescendos in the person of Jesus. So you'd sooner drop the overture in Handel's Messiah, or the beginning of U2's Pride, or the beginning of My Chemical Romance's Welcome to the Black Parade, then skip over this genealogy. Or any genealogy in the Bible, particularly in Genesis. Because the genealogies in Genesis, they're not just some uh, historical uh, information that you can flex and the next time you play Bible trivia. Uh, They've got a point. They're part of a big story that God is telling, which is where we're going today. 
First, we're going to see the gospel in genealogies. Second, uh, the four genealogies in chapter 36 and how God cares especially for unbelievers. And thirdly, because God cares, so should we. So, firstly, the gospel and genealogies of Genesis so far. The first one in the book of Genesis crops up in uh, chapter 5 of Genesis. Uh, It details Adam's family line, noting his descendants, how long they lived, and significantly how long uh, how they all died. So so so-and-so lived so many uh, years, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. We're told over and over again, and that rams home the point that God's promise to Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they would die, uh, was something that all their offspring, including us, would suffer to and do. So, first genealogy, cleverly, shows us that we all die because of sin. The next genealogy is chapter 10. Uh, it's the account of Noah's sons and the nations that come from them and how they're all a product of God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They exist because of the life-giving power of God, and so they're all accountable to him as their creator. So the second genealogy uh, cleverly tells us all nations exist because of God, and they will answer to him. The next genealogy in Genesis is of Noah's good son, uh, Shem, in chapters 11 to 12. And here we see God shows his commitment to see life prevail over death. In an earthly sense, with Shem's healthy family line, but also in a cosmic way with Shem's descendant, Abram, who becomes Abraham, the man through whom God promises to turn the curse of death around into a blessing for the whole world. Genealogy 3, then, uh, is beautifully encapsulates how the world is cursed by sin and death, but God promises to reverse the curse through Abraham. The next genealogy uh, in is in chapter 25, which is a little similar to the one that we're looking at today here in chapter 36, uh, because it's the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn. Ishmael doesn't inherit the promised blessings from God. That goes to his younger brother, Isaac. But nonetheless, we see God's blessing uh, of Ishmael. He gives him 12 sons who become rulers and nations. Although Ishmael's not God's, one of God's chosen ones to carry on the promises that he gave to his father Abraham, nonetheless, God still cares for him and for his descendants. And so in genealogy 4 in Genesis, we see that God still cares for Ishmael and his descendants, which is very similar to the genealogy here uh, of Esau at least in the sense that it's included here in Genesis. Because, as we've seen so far, most of the story is revolved around Jacob, Esau's younger brother. Jacob, who initially duped Esau out of his birthright and stole their father's blessing from him, but we've seen God is with Jacob. Jacob's faith in God has grown. He's wrestled himself into a maturing relationship with God, uh, coming to be called... Israel, and despite his stupid sinfulness, God continues to bless Israel and is starting to fulfill his promises to Abraham through him, promises to bless him as he's looked after him and made him wealthy and respected, promises to make him into a great nation, with Israel having 12 sons, promises to give him the land of Canaan, which hasn't happened yet in the story, 
but he will. Promises to bless the nations through him, which hasn't happened really yet either. And so we expect then uh, the story to go on with Israel's family line, right? Uh, Particularly as we come to the last verse in chapter 35, which tells us that Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people old and full of years. So the son who God's promises came through is now passed away and is going on to the next generation. Esau and Jacob, they buried him, and so you would think it would go on to Jacob and his story. And so in chapter 36, we all expect the story to pick up with Jacob and his sons growing into a great nation as God promised and ultimately possessing the land as God promised. And yet we get verse 1 of chapter 36. This is the account of the family of Esau, that is Edom. What? It's kind of jarring if you're reading it as a story. Why would the story change tracks like this? Who cares about Esau? He's the older brother. He's the less important brother. He's the hick brother and his backward family. Uh, The one who's not really essential to the big story anymore. He's like Charlie in the Twilight series or The Silence in Doctor Who. Who? Who? Who cares? Who knows? Uh, And it's the same for Esau and his brood. Who cares? Well, God cares. That's why they're mentioned here. And as we see from God uh, blessing, we see this, with God blessing Esau with 12 sons, from whom come rulers and nations, and God makes them prosperous, so much so that they have to move away because there's not enough room for both them and for Jacob's family. Although Esau in his own may not be God's chosen people, may not believe in him, God still cares for them. And so should those that are reading this. The original readers would have been the Israelites. And they probably were reading this about a thousand years after the accounts mentioned here. After Isaac has died, a thousand years after that. Those who are now a nation, established in the promised land, with kings. Those to whom God's promises had been fulfilled. Those who knew his blessings, who knew him more than any other people on the planet. Because he'd chosen to... uh, chosen them and he'd given them his law and he'd given them kings, people who no doubt, no doubt they were his special chosen people. But this genealogy here, with this genealogy, God wants the Israelites at least, the original leaders to stop and to notice those who are not his chosen people, those for whom he chose Israel to be a blessing to. This genealogy, I reckon, is a, it's a check. It's a check not only on the Israelites at the time, but to all those who are on the inside of God's people. Those who know God and his promises, as we do. For us to notice, as God does, does those who don't know him. And with this, I reckon, the genealogy of Esau is, is the next note in the power chord of genealogies punching out the malady of God's heart to people on the outside. Those who suffer sin and death and are accountable to God, but who God desperately wants to bless with life instead. And not just the nations, but as individuals. Which brings us to the second point. God cares for every single person, believers and unbelievers, as the amount of unbelieving individuals mentioned in this chapter suggests. Now, you may not have picked up 
as uh, Toes was reading through uh, that passage, uh, all those names earlier, but there's actually four genealogies in this chapter. Uh, first up, there's uh, Esau's genealogy in Canaan, uh, listing Esau's wives with everyone's favourite, Olibama. Uh, there in verse 2, Craig Wannon uh, suggested the other day a great way to remember this name, and it sounds like, Oh Holy Bummer. <laughs> so you'll never forget that name now, Oh Holy Bummer. So anyway, there's the, gen- the first genealogy in this chapter, but as if to make, uh, it's just there to make it very clear that Esau is far from Jacob and God's promises, far from believing in God. We note, you know, Esau has uh, Canaanite wives, where Jacob keeps wives in the family. He has wives that are from within the family, and Esau moves out of the promised land uh, of Canaan to Seir. There in verse eight, while Jacob, as we read uh, later. He stayed in the land where, uh, with his father, stayed uh, in the land of Canaan, the promised land. So that's, that's the first genealogy of Esau, if nothing else, to distinguish uh, him and his family as unbelievers, as those who have rejected God and yet God wants them to be remembered. So then from verse 9 comes the second genealogy of Esau, now in Seir. So he's moved from Canaan uh, to Seir, which transitions from a family to a tribal arrangement, uh, listing three generations of sons in the hill country of Seir, of names after names after names. One or two you might have recognised, like Amalek in verse 12, but most uh, are lost to history and obscurity with ambiguous names like Eliphaz's sons, Omar, Zepho, Gatam and Kenaz. Some good baby names there for Cursed. Kirsty, where are you? Oh, maybe you're in the next service, anyway. Uh, or rural sons, uh, Nakat, Mizar, or Olibama's son, sons, Yalam and Korak. Yeah, the, these generations of uh, Esau's family, described from verse 15 as chiefs, as leaders of possibly thousands, they represent thousands of nameless and obscure people people blessed by God with life and something of a future, people that just could be so easily forgotten, but God won't let us forget them. And then from verse 20 comes the third genealogy of the people in the land of Seir. Three generations of people that were there before Esau and his family rock up and eventually take over uh, as the nation of Edom. People that are another step removed from Jacob and the Israelites. If Esau and his family are on the outside when it comes to God, then these people are even further on the outside. At least some of Esau's descendants had Israelite names like Ruel and uh, Uesh, you know, some connection to God's people. But these people in Seir, before Esau and his family rock up, they are completely and utterly in the dark when it comes to God, as much as we might have no idea what any of their names mean, and nobody does, really, uh, they have they have no idea about God, and yet God knows them, and the thousands of them that they represent as chiefs. God wants them to be remembered. And then there's the uh, verse 31. From verse 31 comes the fourth genealogy of the kings in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. As God promised, Esau becomes a nation, Edom, with a string of kings, name after name and, and where they lived. And I imagine as we read them, or we were reading them earlier, you were either amazed by Toby's uh, pronunciation, beautiful pronunciation of most of them, but I suspect most of us were blanking out at points. 
when I first went to uni, uh, I did an undergraduate course in animation. And uh, one of the privileges of being uh, a film and TV student specialising in animation was that I got to go and see advanced screenings of some animated films before they came out. So a week before it was released, my class and I, we got to go to the cinemas and we had the whole cinema to ourselves uh, to watch the original Aladdin. Yeah, it was fantastic. Just 20 of us in this cinema. Um, anyway, and it was brilliant. Well, it was an outstanding film. Uh, and as the, as the film finished, guess what we all did? We all stayed and watched the entire list of names of the people that worked, worked on the film. And as you know, like with every film, there were hundreds and hundreds of people. But as animation students, we appreciated all the effort and care that had gone into the film. And so every name that worked on it was important and worth noting and being remembered. And that was just for an animated film. The names in these genealogies matter because they don't just represent something they did once. They represent the life and story God gave to them as individuals, as chiefs, as kings, as a nation. As God will tell the Israelites later, don't despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. They're your brothers and your sisters. Even though the Edomites oppose Israel after they came out of slavery in Egypt to come into the Promised Land, refusing to let them go through their land to get to Canaan, treating them like enemies, nonetheless, God would have his people care for them, care for the Edomites. These many, many people who did not know God, did not care for him, did not care for his people, God wants them, his people, to care for them because he cares for them. And these genealogies here in Genesis 36, they are a big sign that God cares for the Edomites and those before them, even as, especially as they represent people who don't believe in him, who don't care for him, who don't know him, the many, many people that he has blessed with life in this world, who he wants us to remember and to care about too. Which brings us to the third point. God wants us to remember unbelievers so that we might care for them. Uh, To that end, then, it's no accident, I think, that the New Testament starts with what? Gospel of Matthew's got a genealogy. starts with a genealogy. This is how it starts, the whole of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A genealogy that, if you read it, goes on to trace the lineage of Jesus right back to David, King David, back to Jacob, back to Abraham. The point being, Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of all God's promises to Abraham and to Jacob, the one to whom bring, uh, who would bring God's blessing to the world, cursed by sin and death, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of eternal life, by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, a blessing not just for God's special people, the Israelites, but a blessing for every nation, tribe and person. A blessing that God wants us to remember is for them and to care about. As the Apostle Paul uh, says, for Christ's love compels us, compels us to try and persuade people to faith in Jesus because we are convinced that one died for all And therefore all died, 
And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Uh, Jesus sees, uh, Paul, sorry, sees Jesus' death as an act of his love. That Jesus willingly suffered and died, not because he deserved it, but for everyone else because they deserved it. And that those who accept this, those who believe that Jesus died for them in their place to bring them God's forgiveness, they'll no longer need to live for themselves, scratching out a life with no real hope in it, because they can live a life for Jesus instead, a life full of hope and a life uh, full of hope and life because he was the one who is raised from the dead for them, never to die again, so that he might offer them eternal life. And knowing this, that Jesus is more than just a man or some pretend saviour, knowing, knowing he is the way to God and to eternal life, this frees us to see everybody else differently, as Paul goes on. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Knowing that Jesus died once for all and rose from the dead, it changes how we see Jesus and others. No longer are they just some nameless face in a crowd or some name in a phone book. In the light of Jesus' death for the whole world, they're no longer a a communist first in our mind or a fascist or Chinese or Anglo or male or female or anything in between. People are no longer even friends or blood family first. They are a believer or they are an unbeliever. Someone who's accepted Jesus died for them and has eternal life and someone who hasn't and is going to hell. And God wants us to notice them. Notice them for his sake and for his own sake to care for them with the gospel. As Paul goes on to say, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's... There's nothing more important than where nations and tribes and individual people are at with God. Nothing. And as those that are reconciled to God, we are Christ's ambassadors, which for Paul meant even being prepared to beg people to trust in Jesus. Are we like him? Or perhaps we just don't think much about those who aren't in Christ. In uh, 1978, the uh, Christian artist uh, Keith Green, look at that hair, it's unbelievable, it's coming back I think, that kind of hair, anyway, uh, he released a uh, challenging song that still has some teeth in it, it's called Asleep in the Light. It's addressed to Christians, it has uh, these lyrics in it. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Now, I'd probably change the exclamation mark at the end there to a question that makes it less guilt-driven, but the fact is Jesus did rise from the dead and it's worth thinking how much that's captured your heart and your imagination because I'm sure you don't want to be asleep in the light when there are so many sleeping in the dark.
Do you? Perhaps this list of unbelievers then in Genesis that we've looked at this morning is precisely what God wants us to pause on and to regard no one from a worldly point of view anymore but from a spiritual point of view and then write down our own list of people so that we might care for them for Jesus' sake. Stumbled across a BBC article from uh, last month breaking the news of a huge cache of data hacked from Chinese police computer servers. Uh, data of Chinese highly secretive system of mass imprisonment, imprisonment and re-education of the Uyghur people. Amongst uh, the data were thousands of pictures of people detained for such things as illegal preaching or travelling to sensitive countries. Uh, for many, many more, it's just not stated why they're there. Uh, here's 2,884 of them, just there in that picture, all with names, just a slice of the many thousands of others that the world has forgotten, but all given life by our God who cares for each and every one of them, enough to send Jesus to die for them. And God knows each of them and cares for each of them. And so should we. And at least the very least pray for them that they would come to know Jesus and, and many others in this world. I wonder who it is that you know that doesn't know Jesus, who's in your life. Your work colleagues, neighbours, classmates, friends, club members, people you shop from or with, people who you, you maybe gotten to know uh, and or maybe gotten out of the habit of just seeing as God sees, as people who are destined for an eternity in hell and who desperately need Jesus and then prayed for them and looked for opportunities to love them and to care for them so that you might commend Jesus to them. I mean, as mentioned earlier, we just started our Hope Explored course last Friday. Uh, that's a great thing to invite people along to, to explore the good news of Jesus. And Connect, as mentioned earlier, it's coming up at the end of the month. Again, another wonderful opportunity to invite young families along to link in with God's people so that they might hear something of Jesus. And Playgroup is on Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. Another space to invite people along, if you've got young kids, to hear something of Jesus. And English is the second language classes that are here every Friday morning. Again, another great space to be inviting people along so that they might hear the good news of the Lord Jesus. These are great places to invite people along to and to serve Jesus and making him known to those that he desperately cares about. I wonder how we caring for the unbelievers around us. How are we working to see them hear about and know Jesus? Who specifically is on our list to pray for and to have conversations with and to work to welcome into God's family here at church. Because God sent Jesus for them too. He cares for them. And so should we. I'm going to pray. Father God, thanks for this genealogy in Genesis and how it reminds us of your grace and your care for those who rejected you or don't know you. 
thanks that it's not your desire that any should perish, that all would know Jesus and be saved. Please forgive us for regarding people only from a worldly point of view and not being concerned for their eternal plight. Grant us your heart for them, that we would be praying for them and speaking about our faith in Jesus with them as opportunity arises and caring for them for Christ's sake and in his name. Help us to care for them as you do. And we pray for this, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.